Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. So turn with me, if you have a copy of the scriptures handy, to Ephesians 6. And we'll just look at those first three verses. You may know this section as the believer's armor, but I, I want us to just look at these introductory verses here. If you've ever immersed yourself in a famous missionary's biography or, um, or thumbed through uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is a popular a resource, or heard testimonies of old saints who were fruitful in the face of overwhelming difficulties. At some point in reading those things and studying those things, you probably thought to yourself, I don't know if I could have done that. I don't know if I could have endured all of that they suffered and endured. I remember years ago when I read Adoniram Judson's biography um, by, uh, actually, I actually don't remember the name of the author, but it's called To the Golden Shore. Uh, Judson, if you may recall, was the first missionary to take the gospel to India. Uh, excuse me, Burma. Burma, back in the 1800s. And he was in the field uh, seven years before he even had a single person even consider making a profession of faith and being baptized. And, uh, and while he was sailing to Burma to get to the field, he had this radical conversion from congregationalism to basically uh, Baptist theology. And so when he arrived, he wrote them back and told them, I'm, I'm no, longer, no longer a congregationalist, and they cut him off financially. They refused to support him, and he ended up um, burying family members on the field. He battled life-threatening illnesses several times over, and yet he was still faithful to bring the gospel there for his whole life. We talked about William Carey last Sunday, who translated the Bible into 35 or so different languages and dialects in India but over the course of his life, enduring incredible suffering and sickness and uh, uh, mistreatment at the hands of his, uh, the culture he was working with there. Hebrews 11, of course, the hall of faith, tells us of those who conquered kingdoms, the scripture says, who shut the mouths of lions, who quenched the, uh, power, uh, the, the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, put foreign armies to flight. Others, he said, writer of Hebrews says, endured torture and mockings and scourgings, chains and imprisonment. Some were sawn in two, put to death, destitute, afflicted. Others were wandered through the deserts, mountains, and subsisted in holes in the ground, the scripture tells us. These are the things that they endured. And they endured all of it on account of their faith, because of their commitment to the Lord. When you hear that and you read that and you look at biographies about that, it certainly puts our struggle to get to church on time in a proper perspective, does it not? I mean, like, these are, these are first world problems that we deal with, but um, when I've read about the real costs in terms of blood and sweat and tears that some of God's people have paid because of their commitment to Christ over the centuries, I've often thought, I don't know if I could have done that. I don't know if I could have endured that. How do they do it? How did they persevere under that kind of pressure in the midst of those difficulties? How did they stand firm? Well, that's what our text is meant to answer. That's the question our text is meant to answer for us this morning. Paul's final words here to the church in Ephesus are an exhortation to stand firm, and then we won't get into it all this morning, the explanation in detail of how to do it in verses 14 and following. So I just want to read the text, verses 10 to 20, and we're going to pick apart the first three verses this morning. But uh, Paul says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, he says, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition. Pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought. To speak. Now, as you read through that section, you'll notice immediately that the whole section's the theme of it is standing firm. Again and again throughout, he says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord. Verse 11, stand firm. Verse 13, stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm. Verse 18, be on the alert with all perseverance. Paul's concern for his readers, Paul's concern for you and for me is that we as believers would stand firm, that we would hold our ground spiritually no matter what in the providence of God he brings into our lives. To drive home his point, Paul uses this imagery of a soldier who's strengthened in the Lord to stand defensively against the onslaughts of the evil one. The devil and his spiritual host desire to rob us as Christians of the individual uh, the benefits that we experience in Christ. Our heavenly privileges, our position, all of that is um, attacked by these evil forces that Paul describes here in these verses. All the things that he explained that belong to the believer in chapters 1, 2, and 3, those things are under attack. And um, they're actively seeking these um, evil forces to, to kind of gain back the spiritual ground that Christ has won in calling us to himself and setting us apart for his kingdom purposes. So, And because of that, we need to have God's supernatural power to stand defensively and victoriously in every manner of temptation, first and foremost, and even in the face of spiritual wickedness. And these verses remind us, then, as we read them, that Christian life is, is a war. It's, a, it's warfare. Um, the image that you should keep in your mind as you read through this section is one of troops deployed upon the battlefield. That's the picture. We must think of ourselves, at times, Scripture calls us, especially the New Testament, calls us to think of ourselves as soldiers, as, as those who are um, conscripted in the Lord's army, and we are always on the front lines preparing for conflict against the evil one. And um, Martin Lloyd-Jones <clears throat> says in his little book in The Christian Soldier, he says, quote, the world outside is, is not interested in Christianity for it thinks that it is something sentimental and sloppy and spineless. Do our lives, he asks, suggest that there's some truth in the criticism? Are we guilty of a kind of softness which is an utter misrepresentation of Christian truth, end quote. 
It's a legitimate question. We need to ask ourselves, does, does our testimony as believers, commu- what does that communicate to the outside world? What does it communicate to those who are lost? And um, the Christian life is, is, is one of battling, of warfare. But it's not physical warfare. We understand that. I mean, 2 Corinthians makes that clear. The weapons of our warfare are not physical. They're spiritual. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We are engaged in a spiritual battle, and the Christian life is one of continual spiritual conflict. It begins, and really, the battle is won in our hearts. We don't need to look for demons and spirits under every rock and under every chair. The, the, the devil is in us, if you will. James 1, the, the, where does sin come from? It comes from our hearts. So primarily, the battle is within, for the believer, against our flesh. But there's also an external component to it. The battle is without, beyond us in the sense that we seek to stand firm against the devil and his hellish deceptions, which he references here in verse 12. So many Christian people seem to be disappointed when they find out that the Christian life is a fight. It's like if you, depending on how the gospel was presented to you, how you heard it, how you, how you were introduced to it, uh, you may have gotten this false notion that somehow the moment you became a Christian, all of life's problems just evaporate and disappear. Um, and uh, sometimes the way the gospel is presented is kind of a way to enrich your life. And um, they don't present the full picture and understand that the, the Christian life is a fight. It's a struggle. It's a struggle. And when, when some believers find out that that's not the case, they become, difficult, they become despondent. They become discouraged by the fact that life is, isn't really happening the way they thought it was going to unfold. And that discouragement, as it festers, can lead to, even for the most discerning Christians, can lead to self-pity. Um, I battled that a little bit this week, a little bit of self-pity and and feeling sorry for themselves. What was me? When self-pity rules, then we become weak spiritually and lethargic, and we are, in a sense, neutralized to the usefulness that God calls us to as believers. But Paul's exhortation here in these verses is for us to stand, to pull yourself together, to brace yourself for battle. That's the picture here. And all, and we need this word of exhortation. I need this word of exhortation. As soon as we give in to the temptation to self-pity, as soon as we give way to discouragement, we lose something of our spiritual energy and usefulness. It's zapped from us. The Christian life is a fight. It's a battle every day. And we shouldn't be surprised that the Christian life is a battle because the scripture tells us that it's a, it's a battle. I think it's uh, I think it's Second Peter says, "Do not be surprised by the fiery trial or ordeal that you are facing, as if somehow that was unusual." It's not. It's if we are surprised by difficulty and spiritual temptation, then we don't know our Bibles well enough, because the Scriptures make it clear that's a huge part of the 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 hope that we have that one day we will be set free from all of it. Paul's word to us then is to stand and to stand firm. This entire section is an exhortation to that, and and he also explains how to do that. And I want to make that as practical as I possibly can this morning. So I want to look at this charge in verses 10 to 13 to stand firm in the strength of God's might. 
I want to understand what it means, first, um, how it works, and thirdly, why it matters. So break it down into three parts. We want to consider what it means to stand firm in God's strength. What is it, how does it work, practically speaking, and why does it matter? So we begin in verse 10 with the what. Paul's charge. What does he tell us? He says, verse 10, be strong in the Lord. This is a charge. And Paul's charge here in this passage is directed to the individual heart, to the believer, but it's also directed to the church body. There's a corporate dynamic to this as well. It's not just me and Jesus. No, it's all both the individual and the corporate body as a whole. And the charge is a rousing one. He says, be strong in the Lord. Paul is giving a practical instruction for these folks here concerning how to live out their new position in Christ before one another and before a, wa- a watching world. And the first command Paul gives really sets the tone for everything he says after. He says, be strong. Or really, literally, it says, be strengthened in the Lord. Um, this is a passive voice here, meaning the believer is not the one doing the strengthening. The believer is the one receiving the strengthening. Believers do not strengthen themselves. They are to be strengthened. They are acted upon. The power doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from me in and of ourselves. It comes from outside of us. That's what he's getting at here. He says something very similar back in chapter 3 and verse 16. If you just Flip back in your Bible, chapter 3, he says, uh, he, he um, prays that uh, God would grant them, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So um, very similar kind of uh, language, same terms, same book. And so we can be confident that Paul's using it in a very similar way. Believers, he says, are to be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's what we go back to chapter 6. That is the point. The prepositional phrase, in the, strength, in the Lord and in the strength of his might, that, that clarifies, it, it puts parentheses around the sphere and the source of that strength. Um, it is in our own person. It is in our own being. It is the strength and might of Christ. We're to be strengthened as we are united with the Lord. And for years and years, I remember struggling with, what does that mean? I mean, what is that? Because um, what does it mean to be strong in the Lord? Or what does it mean to do something in God's strength? As Christians, we have a certain um, language, don't we? We have a certain nomenclature and things that we say and do that are kind of very unique to our, our Christian culture and certain buzzwords. And we love to throw them around, and one of those that we often will repeat and say is, especially when we've fallen short in something, is we'll say, you know, I was just doing such and such in my own strength and not God's. That's, that's why I didn't follow through on this, that's why I'm continuing to give into this temptation, and that's why I had to kind of let this go or whatever. We, we say, I was just operating within my own strength instead of God's strength. And I would often, uh, I hear that, and I say, wow, that sounds really spiritual, and that, that makes sense. I, I can see why that would happen. But then when you stop and think about it, it's like, what does that mean? What does that actually 
what, what are you saying? And what does it mean when you're doing something in God's strength? Is it some kind of supernatural zap from heaven? You know, like wireless charging that comes down? Is it, is it a passive thing where we sit back and we just, we just let God do whatever he's going to do? Is it some kind of emotional, or is it something more um, external? Is it like an emotional frenzy, some kind of a manic, adrenaline-fueled runner's high that allows you and I to accomplish great feats for God? Well, that's what I want us to consider this morning. What does that mean? The answer to that question, what does it mean to do something in God's strength, biblically, I think we are helped in defining that and explaining that by just looking a little bit back into chapter 5 and verse 18. Because what we see in verse uh, 18 of chapter 5 is a very similar sounding command. It is a command for us as a believer to do something, and yet God is the one who's doing it, which is an interesting kind of uh, uh, dynamic. So look at verse 18. It says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But this is a command be filled with the Spirit. That sounds very similar, doesn't it? Be continually filled with the Spirit. And if you look at chapter 6, verse 10, be strengthened in the strength of his might. Both are commands. Both are in the present tense. So there's a continual aspect of, to that. Both are passive, meaning God is the one who does and accomplishes the action. So the question is, is there a link between the Lord's strength and the Spirit's filling? And as luck would have it, there is. If you look back at chapter 3 and verse 16 again, if you see what Paul says there, he connects the two for us. He grant, he, we pray that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened okay, with power through his Spirit in the inner man. So the connection is this, the Lord's strength is mediated, it is channeled through the Holy Spirit's power in our inner person. So if we want to tap into the Lord's strength, then we must be filled with the Spirit. That is the connection. And what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, again, The scriptures define it for us. If you look at Colossians 3 and verse 16, Paul says almost the identical uh, thing that he says in Ephesians 5 verse 18, but instead of talking about the Spirit of God, the filling of the Spirit, he says in verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, there's a, there's a connection there. To be filled with the Spirit is to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now, that's something we can do. That's something that is practical that we can understand. So to bring it all together, I just want to give you a definition of what it means to do something in God's strength. And I think this is a helpful way to think about it. When the Bible talks about being strong in the Lord... It means this, and this is a long definition. You don't need to copy it down verbatim, but we'll summarize it in a, in a kind of one phrase. It is cultivating and maintaining a settled conviction in God's word, which then compels us through the agency of the Holy Spirit to obey that revealed word in any of life's circumstances. I'll say that again. 
When the Bible talks about being strong in the Lord, it means cultivating and maintaining a settled conviction in God's word, which then compels us through the Spirit to obey that word in any of life's circumstances. So it's not a matter of grit. It's not a matter of willpower. It's not about any other external motivating factors like fear of man or pride or personal reputation or spite or any other fleshly motive. In other words, it's obedience in all of life's circumstances, but that obedience rises out of a conviction about the word of God. So standing firm in God's strength isn't passive. We're not waiting for that zap from above. It's not like waiting around for the bus to come. Eventually the bus will show up, I'll get on and I'll go. No, our waiting excuse me, our, our working is a very, our being strengthened is a very active process. Uh, years ago, I, I'm not a big um, boat guy, but I, had, I lived in Florida, and there was a gentleman in our church who loved to sail. And he took us out one day on those little, um, what are those little sunfish? You know, you, you kind of, it's a little one or two man um, sailboat. And uh, I got a, a, a crash course in sailing. But what was interesting to me, I thought, is very applicable. When you're sailing, you're constantly assessing the wind's direction and its speed. You are, um, you're looking to figure out how to trim the sails to get from point A to point B, where you want to go. And at the end of the day, though it is the, uh, when you get done, no matter what you do with the sails, at the end of the day, it's the wind that moves the boat. Um, that's why we need to trim the sails to tap into the wind's power. And I feel like that's a very fitting analogy for the way that, that we um, uh, are strengthened in the Lord. In the same way that the sailor is actively positioning himself to tap into the wind's power, you and I as Christians must be actively trimming the sails of our hearts to tap into God's capacity and God's strength. When we cultivate and maintain that settled conviction in God's truth, his character, his commandments, we are, in a sense, trimming the sails of our hearts to harness God's strength, God's power. And when we do that, that's when we get busy for the Lord Jesus Christ in sickness and disappointment, in temptation and persecution, in calamity, you name it. The wind is at our back in those situations spiritually such that we're able to do what we need to do in God's strength. This is at the heart of Paul's charge. So to do something in God's strength, to put it succinctly, is having a conviction from the scriptures that compels us to obey them. That's essentially what's going on. And Paul's charge here to be strengthened in the Lord, to let Christ's power measured out through the Spirit compel us to obey him, that is what it means to be strong in the Lord and to operate in the strength of his might. So that's the what. What is the charge? Be strong in the Lord. Okay? But then, again, let's get even more practical. How? How do you do that? That's the second point in our outline. How do we position ourselves to be strengthened in the Lord and to cultivate and maintain this conviction in God's truth that compels us to obey him no matter what? And Paul uses the imagery of the believer's armor in verse 11. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. 
So the verb to put on is used here as it is elsewhere, and it has the idea uh, literally of putting on clothing, but it's used here obviously in a metaphorical sense. Uh, it's like that intentionally. I believe Paul is, is using that in a metaphorical sense intentionally. It's like um, there's a sense of urgency there, like a soldier who's readying for battle. There's a sense of immediacy here. And the armor that he's talking about, which he describes in the verses underneath, are, um, they represent those of a typical Roman soldier of the day. And it was quite possible, Paul wrote Ephesians in prison. At the end of Acts, he is under house arrest, and um, there are likely uh, soldiers around him. And so maybe he was inspired by what they were wearing or how they, how they dressed as he wrote this. I don't know can't be 100% sure, but the picture here is of a soldier putting on his armor piece by piece. And that's how we as believers appropriate Christ's power through the agency of the Spirit to stand firm. So Paul likens this cultivating and maintaining a settled conviction in God's truth. He likens it to putting on the full armor of God. And he says we have to do this if we're going to stand firm. You notice there's a purpose Clause at the end of verse 12, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. There's no other way around it. You can't do it any other way. And if you're here this morning and you're struggling with temptation and sin, if you seem to be lurching from spiritual failure to spiritual failure, Paul's exhortation here to be strong, to brace yourselves To stand firm is a call for you and for me to put on the full armor of God. Now, first and foremost, you must submit yourself to the lordship of Christ. I mean, that's that's where it begins. You have to confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead in order to be saved. And so it begins with a recognition that Christ is, is who he claimed to be, that he died and rose again, as the scriptures tell us, and that his word is the final and perfect revelation for your heart and life. I mean, we have to acknowledge that. that It's a foundational. If you're not a Christian, you can't put on God's armor. So you must put your faith in Christ. But when you've done that, and he assumes that the readers have done that, He said you must also be so saturated with God's truth that your conviction about God's character, your conviction about God's commandments is so settled that it compels you through the agency of the Spirit to obey God no matter what. No matter what. It's a conviction that compels. But let's get even more granular. How can you and I lay hold of this Spirit-empowered strength? J.I. Packer summarizes it in a fourfold sequence about as practically and as clearly as I've ever seen anywhere else, in both in studying for this and on this topic as a whole. He breaks it down into four parts, fourfold sequence, and we're just going to walk through it with a little commentary. First, he says, quote, As one who wants to do all the good that you can, you observe what tasks, opportunities, and responsibilities you face. So in other words, step one, if you will, is to assess. Assess, and you need to approach every circumstance assessing what does God require of me 
in this context. What is, what is God's will for me as it relates to this person, this family member, this co-worker, this brother and sister in Christ, this, uh, these thoughts that I'm holding onto and turning over in my mind? What is God's will for me in this situation? We need to assess our hearts, assess each of life's circumstances. Second, he says, quote, you pray, you not only assess, but you pray for help in these things that you have unearthed, acknowledging that without Christ, you can do nothing, nothing fruitful. And he quotes John 15 and verse 5. So the part two, if you will, is first is to assess. Secondly, is to acknowledge that you are indeed in need to pray and to ask God to help you to obey him in that circumstance. He says, quote, third, you go to work then with a good will and a high heart, expecting to be helped as you asked to be. So um, there's a lot in that little statement there. So first is to assess, second is to pray, third is to do. But before we do, we need to recognize that step two there in praying must be very specific. For many of us, when we're faced with a task, particularly something that's difficult, we, we will oftentimes as Christians, maybe in the back of our mind quietly, or maybe even not, maybe out loud, we'll pray, Lord, help me. I, I need you in this situation. I need your help here. I, I know I've prayed that many a time um, uh, up here and anywhere else, you know, in different meetings and things like that. Lord, help me. But when we move straight from that generic prayer to doing, we can sometimes short-circuit a powerful step in this process. And I want you to notice what he says here. We, we go to work, but we go to work a certain way. He says, expecting to be helped as we have asked. After you pray for God's help, you need to remind yourself And maybe even as you pray for God's help, remind yourself of the specific promises that God has made in his word. Anchor your mind on that. Put your trust in that. It's okay to say, Lord, I believe you in this or that. Help my unbelief. Increase my faith in this promise. I am trusting that when you say that if I cast my cares on you, that you care for me. I believe that, Lord. Help me to trust in that. Or um, when you need to respond in a way that is supernatural, when you want to respond in a way that's natural, right? Maybe that's being angry, being short-tempered, or or whatever. You can come back to those promises, and, and you need to pray for them and trust in them. We act with a, an expectant, trusting heart. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith. Our whole lives are walking in faith. Galatians 2, 20 says we live by faith. What does that look like moment by moment? It looks like you and me reminding ourselves of the specific promises God has made and that Christ is secured by his blood. I love 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. Paul says, For as many as are the promises of God in Jesus, in him, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen, our so be it, to the glory of God through us. I mean, this is the reality. We act in faith because God is who he claims to be. He is trustworthy. 
worthy. His promises are true. And though we may not trust in them entirely or unswervingly, we need to come back to that. So I'm reminded of Acts 4. Because you remember in Acts 4, Peter and John are uh, preaching the gospel and they're, they're arrested and they're told not to preach the gospel anymore. And uh, I think it's in verse 23, they were released and they went back to the disciples and um, they shared all that would happen. And, uh, and then they prayed. The disciples made the object of their prayer the godly need of the hour. They prayed that they would have boldness. And as they prayed for it, that's when the power came. And so what you see here is this reality that when the disciples made the object of their prayer, the godly need of the hour, that is when the Spirit showed up to help. If you want the fullness of the Spirit to rest on your life, then set your heart to doing God's will and then call out to him for the enablement to do so because God is not dead. We read it this morning. If we ask in his name, that is in accordance with his character, in accordance with his will, he hears us. The living God answers prayer. And so we act. So you can break it down. First is to assess. Second is to pray. Third is to act with a trusting heart. We do whatever God calls us to do in faith. And then fourth, uh, Packer says, you thank God for help given, ask pardon for your own failures en route, and request more help for the next task. He says, spirit-filled holiness is hard-working holiness. It is based on the endless repetitions of this sequence of pray, excuse me, assess, pray, act, and to thank God. That is the process. It's, it's, it's not mystical. It's not passive where you're just waiting around for it to happen. We must approach all of life's circumstances in this way. You cannot be strong. You cannot stand firm any other way. If we do not stand firm, we will eventually give way to disappointment, to spiritual weakness, to indifference, and, you, and in some ways we become useless for Christ's kingdom. So, so this is the process. This is how we go about the task. And uh, verses 14 and following, he explains that armor uh, to us in detail. But this is the process behind it. So we've seen the what, we've seen the how, and now we see, in thirdly, the why. Why must we put on the full armor of God? Because our enemy is real. He's real. We face a real enemy who can inflict real damage. Our enemy is real, and we need to know how he operates. You can't go into conflict, battle with any hope of success unless you have some idea of who you're dealing with. I used to, when I worked at... Um, my part-time job at Wegmans years ago, I worked with a guy who was retired from the CIA. And he lived all over the world as an agent developing resources to gather intelligence about potential threats to the United States so, so that we as a country wouldn't be blindsided by any attacks. Um, that's, in a sense, what we're doing here as we read this text. We, we're scouting the enemy. And the Word of God tells us in detail who we're dealing with in verse 12. He says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is who we're dealing with. And I want you to understand that it's not a physical adversary you can see with your eyes. It's not a physical adversary you can touch with your hands. This is critical because if we're looking the wrong way, when the enemy attacks, we will be caught off guard. I still think... uh, I still think too many Christians are jumping up and down, expending way too much energy trying to fight off the enemy on a, on a horizontal plane, on a physical level, rather than where he truly is on a spiritual level. Too much, too much time and attention is devoted to um, politics and court rulings and what the scripture calls Proverbs, you know, horses and chariots. And while we have to engage the world, certainly need to engage the world in a horizontal plane, we need to understand that the struggle is, is a spiritual struggle. It's a spiritual struggle. All the evil we see around us ultimately resolves back to a satanic world system that is, is hell-bound and bent on thwarting the gospel and its transforming work in men's hearts. This is the world we live in. It's always been this way since the fall. The conflict is not raging uh, necessarily externally all the time, it's raging internally in men's hearts. And if we're focused on externals, we're looking the wrong direction. We're liable to be caught off guard. We need to guard our hearts. When we understand the enemy is operating on a spiritual plane, we will engage him where he operates on a spiritual level, which is why we preach and teach the Word of God, with conviction and with clarity, because this is how we cut across the grain and do battle. We are taking every thought captive, Paul says, to the obedience of Christ. He's not only operating on a spiritual plane, but he is formidable, we learn in this verse. He's formidable. He's not stupid. The devil is not haphazard. He rarely, if ever, attacks from the front. The word of God calls him the deceiver. Scripture refers to Satan as the slanderer. His allies are fully versed in the scriptures. First Peter describes him as a roaring lion, roaring lion roaming about seeking souls to devour. So our adversary is formidable. He operates from a position of perceived authority, whether that's through leaders, people of influence, and everything he does is coordinated in such a way so as to distort the word of God and lead others astray. To withstand that kind of an enemy, we need to be on the alert, and we need to have the Lord's strength. Mere willpower and self-sufficiency and grit is not enough. It's not enough we will be overrun. And um, when we're fixated on meeting the enemy on a purely physical level, we underestimate his size, we underestimate his skill. It's like uh, maybe you've ever had one of those little electric fences, little doggy fences. You know, If a dog really wants to get through that, they will. They'll blast through it. They might get a zap, right? It's like putting up one of those electric fences to keep a SWAT team out. It's just not going to work. It's not going to work. Our enemy just reaches, walks right over the line, does whatever he wants. But to tap into the Lord's strength, 
by cultivating and maintaining a settled conviction in God's truth, in his character, in his commandments, when we are enabled to obey him in any of life's circumstances, well, then we find God to be, as Proverbs 18.10 says, a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. We're not led astray. We're not exposed on our flanks, and we are able to resist the enemy and to stand firm in the Lord's strength. Our adversary is spiritual. Our adversary is formidable. But we have to understand he is not undefeatable. He is not undefeatable. So we see the what, the how, and the why of standing firm in God's strength. Paul brings it all home in verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Paul takes everything he said thus far and reiterates and sums it up here in verse 13. Our adversaries are spiritual in nature. They exercise supernatural power and strength. They are a formidable foe to each and every one of us, both individually and as the church. But Paul's charge is reiterated that we must put on that armor and have done everything possible to stand firm. This whole idea in verse 11 and again in verse 13 of standing firm in this military context, it captures the idea of resist, withstand, or to stand one's ground. That's the picture. The term denotes a defensive rather than an offensive stance. Paul is not calling on us here to conquer. He is not calling on us here to take ground. That's God's job. Our job is to stand the ground and to resist in the evil day. You say, well, what is that? What's the evil day is Paul talking about? Well, he appears to be referring to just the present evil times. In a generic sense, he talks about it in the present, but it also looks ahead to the future. There will be other times in the future that we can't even anticipate where there will be spiritual battles. So it has a present feel to it with a look toward an eye toward the future. And Paul sums up his charge exhorting you and I as believers to take up that full armor of God in order to be able to stand in the evil day in which we live and be vigilant, always prepared, right? That's, that was our, our Boy Scout motto is be prepared. That's essentially what he's saying here in verse 13. Be prepared. The context of these verses is not about conquering. It's not about dominating. It's not about gaining ground. It's about holding fast to the victory that Christ has already won. He's already conquered. He has already won. I mean, he says at the end of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be the God... Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The victory has been won. Therefore, he says, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the word of the Lord. Do you see that? That is the strengthening that happens. It's connected to the victory that Christ has already won. It's not about gaining ground 
The ground has been won, and Christ has called us to stand firm. James sums it up really well in chapter 4. He says, Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You know, this is why we memorize the scriptures. You understand? <laughs> like, you cannot obey the word of God if you don't know the word of God. And the best way to pray to the mark is to know the word of God so well that you can recall it without even having to look it up. You don't have to wonder, you don't have to be like the writer in Hebrews that says, somewhere it says, right, you can actually quote chapter and verse. They didn't have chapter and verses, that's why he said that. But the point is, you can know where and exactly what God's will is. So as you pray and ask for God to help and trust him expectantly, you know exactly what he promises he will do and can do and what you can expect him to do. And this is how we stand firm. Martin Luther's hymn, Mighty Fortresses Are God. We understand that the devil is a formidable adversary, but he is not God's equal on the dark side. Okay? He is the Lord's devil. And uh, the, the, the verse, I think it's verse 3, it says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, it says, his doom is sure. And then this little phrase at the end, one little word shall fell him. Such is the magnitude of difference between God's infinite capacity and omnipotence and Satan's adversarial role. And you and I, we stand with Christ, and we have his strength at, an, at our back. And as we assess and pray and act in faith and thank him for his enablement, we can be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You can honor God in that circumstance that you think you will never gain victory over. You can honor God in that relationship that you think will never be brought to peace. You can honor God in that ministry effort that you think you cannot continue on in. You can. You can in God's strength. And so Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you, one little word shall fell our adversary. What a, what a promise. Um, greater is he who is in the world, right, than uh, anyone else. Lord, we know that you ultimately have gained the victory. Nothing stands in your way. We pray, Lord, that we would make ourselves um, available, that we would trim the sails of our hearts so as to receive your enablement and power. We pray, Lord, that we would understand how to do that a little bit better because of our study this morning. I pray that you would enable and strengthen us to live holy and transform lives for you today. And at the end of this day, we know that every good thing that you've wrought within us is not ours, but it's from you. And so may we stop and give you thanks for how you accomplished it and uh, look to you for fresh grace for the tomorrow and every day, Lord, sufficient are the troubles thereof. So help us to look to you in every circumstance. May we be strong in the Lord as a church and in the strength of your might. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the Gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.